It's 1001 LA Nights. This is LA Rivers with you. It's March 1st, 2019. Or is it? We're going to step back a little bit in time and talk about 55 years ago today with, uh, well, maybe it isn't today because we actually recorded this a couple of weeks ago. I went down to Vista, California because I'm hanging out in LA. Uh, Vista, California is just north of San Diego. And I met with Gideon Marcus of galacticjourney.org. It was a fabulous interview. Had fun meeting Gideon and his wife, Janice. And they have a time capsule room that was remarkable. Um, it was like stepping back into the, um, the dining rooms of elder relatives in my childhood in the 70s. Uh, complete with the lovely wood dinette set with the uh, velvet upholstered chairs. Um, just very fun. Um, the the old-fashioned radio with the cloth covering the speakers and the record player, uh, which also serves as a radio and broadcast music from 30 years ago. And the TV broadcast television shows that were airing that day 55 years ago. He controls the airwaves around his house. It's really, really cool. Um, we talk science fiction. We talk history. And it's a full geek out session. And uh, the podcast will sound a little different because we were sitting on the floor recording this on my cell phone. It was a lot of fun. I had a great time. Uh, and what was really fun was when he showed me the control center of, of what he does and had the TV on, it was looping. And a lot of you are going to be too young to remember this, but TVs used to loop and you had rabbit ears and you would adjust them. Well, my job as a little kid, you know, so like five, six years old was to go and hold the rabbit ears because for some reason I had the touch. I think everybody had a member of the family who had the touch and I was that one. And the minute it came on and it was looping, I almost reflexively reached a hand out to fix the rabbit ears. And I think that that was such an amazing visceral experience. It was so fun. Um, and uh, one of the fun things about that was because I did grow up with an old TV set my parents bought in the 60s uh, when they first got married. They had color tubes. And when those blew, your color TV went to black and white. So um, not everybody in my age group would remember having to yell out to your parents, hey, the tube blew, but uh, but uh, I did. And so some of you may have that nostalgia as well. We had so much technological change so fast that often our humanity hasn't come to catch up with that. And that, that's some of the stuff we talk about uh, in the interview in this next segment you get to listen to. Uh, we talk a little bit about inclusivity. You'll notice there's a theme going on. I am about being inclusive here on the podcast. There are so many different ways of seeing the world, so many voices, and yet that narrative is often suppressed through um, the eyes of people who control marketing because they'll say, well, these numbers show this, but they haven't actually tested the market. They don't even, they haven't spent enough time cultivating or trying to reach out because a lot of times people who have disposable income, even if it's not a lot, but might support a project, they haven't been marketed to. And so you have to build relationships with them or they won't even look for it. So a lot of times people of color, um, 
African Americans, people from different cultures don't end up being heard or represented. Uh, women, um, members of the LGBTQ community, I've talked a little bit about that on the podcast before, they don't get their stuff into the right hands because publishers aren't willing to take risks on it or build a market. And so we get stuck with some of these tropes. That's why a lot of the tropes are just embedded in certain genres. And we don't get this expansive viewpoint of perspective um, that that can be had in literature and writing in movies and television in in media in general. So I like to cover that here on the podcast. Um, Aspen Knudsen's story actually talks a little bit about perspective. And uh, man, I want the rest of that book. Uh, is it's a really good read. Um, and then Sunday, this Sunday, we have a special episode, so please be ready to tune in as I interview Sotwinder Simone Isser, who is an amazing, soulful, thoughtful healer, activist, uh, spiritual teacher, and uh, a former student of mine, and it was a, a great privilege to interview her and have her read her poems on the podcast for Sunday, March 3rd. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. But for now, we're going to time travel. We're going to go back a little bit, just a little bit, five years before I was born, to Galactic Journey and speaking with Gideon Marcus. got Gideon Marcus with me of Galactic Journey. So. Hi. Hi. Tell me about your Galactic Journey. So Galactic Journey is a portal to 55 years ago. It's a day-by-day blog written by a number of people now as if we live in the past. We're a bunch of nerds living in the past writing about science fiction and the space race and politics and fashion and music and everything that exists at the time so we can experience life right now it's february 1964 as if we're there in a contextual sort of way it's a fascinating project i like it yeah so what have been some of the um the biggest um ahas or uh, revelations you've gotten by doing this project that you started in 2013, I believe. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I started the blog in 2013, I was just reading these magazines and decided at some point I should probably write about them because over time I was starting to, to see trends and recognize things. So one of, the, one of the first things I noticed was that about 25% of the stuff that I was really enjoying reading was written by 10% of the contributors, and those were the 10% who were women. And I was like, hmm. And I, I didn't know why the women pen stuff was better. I just knew that I liked it better. And then over time, I think it was because it was a different viewpoint. Uh, perhaps their bar to entry was higher, so the quality had to be better so that no one could ignore them. Um, and I found that people didn't know that, that women writers really existed in the time before Le Guin and McCaffrey. Um, but in fact, there were 40 women writing in that time when, when Le Guin came on the scene in 1962. So I started spotlighting uh, women and people of color and, uh, and characters and queer themes and such like that um, as it went on. So that, that was probably the biggest revelation. That was very early on. And so the blog ended up taking this bent that I had not intended when I started it, but very quickly it got it. 
right. Okay. So serendipitously, happy findings. Um, of those <coughs> 40 female writers, what would be um, one that, like, if you had a favorite, who would she be? So the one I, the name I always pick out is uh, Roselle George Brown. And I don't know if anyone knows who she is these days. She died way too early. She was 41, I think it was 1966. Hasn't happened yet, but, but it will in a couple years from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and her stuff is just great um, and beautiful and biting and just very interesting. Um, she has one anthology that came out in 63. Uh, she has a, a, a book she co-wrote with Keith Lummer called Earth Blood in 65. Uh, and then she's gone. Um, so if you get a chance, Roselle George Brown is, is, the, is the unsung heroine of the time. But there's, there's tons of them, from right. Zena Henderson to Catherine McLean to Miriam Allen DeFord, uh, Evelyn Smith. I mean, they, they, I could go on forever, but there's right. tons. What, um, thematically, what did you see different in these books? Um, I don't want to say that they covered women's topics, because that, mm-hmm. that sounds uh, uh, superficial. But um, women had different lives back then, um, mm-hmm. different expected lives, different perspectives. Um, and so as the, as the non-dominant faction, shall we say, um, they had viewpoints. Uh, I think women were freer to write about things. I, I won't say the emotions, because that, mm-hmm. again, sounds pat. But at the same time, you know, Roselle George Brown could write about the housewife experience in the future mm-hmm. with, with some intimate understanding of what was going right. on. Um, it wasn't satire or an outsider's perspective that, that a guy might write. Right. Which isn't to say that a guy couldn't capture it. And there were plenty of guys who were the, the equivalent of woke back then. Right. Um, a lot of them were Jewish because they, they had that experience right. too. Uh, in fact, I will, I will beat the drum of Bob Sheckley Robert Sheckley, mm-hmm. I don't. I, you probably know who he is. I suspect most of the people listening don't. Right. Um, but he wrote short stories throughout the fifties, and they are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get any of his collections, you will you will be richly rewarded. Exactly. So now you curate information on Galactic Journey, um, and your wife Janice edits. Correct. Yes, and so and she has an article out. I believe. Right. Um, so from our perspective, the uh, the blockbuster Seven Days in May just premiered. It premiered on the 12th, and we watched it on the 12th. Um, and we got to watch Ava Gardner and Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. And that movie was amazing. Um, cool. And uh, well worth watching. And and a bit relevant today. A bit preachy. It was it was a Rod Serling screenplay, and it shows. But, um, but they made it work. That's cool. So what led you down this path to curating and creating this, this experience? This insanity. So, so you're in my house. So you've seen the, the depths to which I've fallen. Um, I, I control the airwaves within, within 500 feet of my house. We have a 1964 TV station, 1964 radio station. Um, it all started um, when I inherited a big science fiction collection from my father. Uh, and he instilled in me a, a deep and long-lasting love for the stuff. Um, and I was reading it. And as I was reading it, I, I was, I'm a journalist and I'm a writer. And I've been a writer for a long time. I'm a space historian with, a, with expertise in the late 50s. So this, this was my jam. This is something I knew. And I kept seeing harmonies between then and now. So people often ask me, why 55 years? It's an odd number. It's not one that most people pick. 
And I found that 55 years ago is sort of this magic line between today and yesterday. The world before 55 years ago is alien. It's in black and white. People wear funny clothes. It's, it's not really comprehensible. But 55 years ago is a world you can recognize. It's our world, just crappier. The technology is worse. People are worse to each other. We're not as progressive. And yet, all the same things that people were talking about back then we're talking about now. Black Lives Mattered then. Right. Um, we had the beginnings of nativism and the modern conservative philosophy. You can draw a line from Goldwater yep. to Nixon to Bush the second to uh, Reagan in the middle there yep. to Trump. Uh, nothing Trump says is new. Goldwater was saying it in 62. Yep. Um, that's environmental what's, That's what's mortifying. Right. <laughs> Uh, uh, Silent Spring, mm-hmm. um, global warming. People knew about that in the fifties. Oh, Isaac yeah. Asimov was writing about yep. it. So, so Galactic Journey was basically made as a mirror to today, um, and also because let's face it, these are the people that I'm writing about. These are people that history is largely forgotten. Yeah. They wrote good stuff. Yeah. And there's some great movies, and it is worth remembering them just as I hope in 55 years from now, people will remember, you know, Rebecca Roanhorse and Nora Jemison and all the, all the big important names of our time. I should right. hope that they'll be remembered 55 years from now. Right, right. There's so much creativity happening because there was so much um, technological expansion at the time. Um, <clears throat> What is your um, favorite um, favorite experience you've had in the past couple of years exploring 55 years ago? Well, the most rewarding thing about doing the journey has been meeting people. Mm-hmm. Um, I love... There, there are people who, who went through it the first time and they're re- rediscovering it. And I get to talk to people who, who were intimately involved in in these events or they had family members who had so for instance one of the people who writes for me Ida Moya she's actually Cindy Moya uh, and she takes on the persona of her grandmother oh, cool. uh, and Cindy Moya works at the Living Computer Museum in Seattle uh, okay. so she knows all about this old tech I mean she she has accounts on computers from the 60s um, and she writes as her grandmother talking about technology and women's place in technology, uh, the women who, who worked at Los Alamos and, and mm-hmm. Woomera and all these places. Um, I love getting those stories. And the other thing I love is introducing people to things that they never would have had before. So, for instance, I spoke at NerdCon in 2016, and uh, one of the, the people in my audience, so I have a thing, I go as an avatar of, you know, I'm someone who walked off out of the TARDIS, and I can say that now because Doctor Who is now out. Um, I walked out of the TARDIS. It's 1964. Ask me anything, and we get this Q and A session. And you know, depends on the audience. Sometimes it's general audience, and I talk about Cuban Missile Crisis or whatever, or it's comics, or it's, or it's you know, slash pairings in the early 60s of my right. escapade. <laughs> and uh, there was this young lady in the audience in her early 20s, dressed in a Legend of Zelda costume, and. Um, and she asked me great questions, so I gave her a prize. I give prizes out at all my things. And I gave her a Bob Sheckley collection. Uh, and I followed up with her a week later, and I said, how did you like the book? She said, I read the whole thing. It was great. And I'm like, this is someone who never, especially since libraries no longer, remember when libraries had old books in them? Oh, yeah. That's how I and discovered science yeah, fiction. Yeah. They, they don't they, anymore. No, they get rid of them. Um, so this is someone who's young, generation, either young millennial or, or, or late Z, depending on, on where you draw the line. And she's the Bob Sheckley now. 
That's awesome. And I did that. You did that. Isn't that cool? I, I love that. Um, I'm going to bring it around. So I'm going to brag for you. You were nominated for a Hugo last yes. year. Yes. A bunch so, of people collectively lost their mind. Yeah. Or miswrote or something. Yeah. Very honored. <laughs> it would be cool if they collectively did it again. I I would love that. And yeah. they, they have until March 15th to, to make that nomination. March 15th. March 15th. If you're listening, <laughs> all 12 of you. Um, no. Okay, cool. So Hugo, Hugo nominated. You go to events. So NerdCon, which sounds fabulous. It doesn't exist anymore. Oh. But, but that's true. That's all um, right. This weekend I'm going to Escapade. Next weekend is um, San Diego Comic Fest. Okay. Um, every quarter I do... Excuse me, a speech at uh, at the wavelength where I do what I call stand up education. Okay, cool. Um, it's, it's sort of like a TED talk, I guess. All right, and where's wavelength at? It's in Vista. In Vista, it's here. a great micro boob okay. run by okay. a guy named Hans, and it's science themed. Okay, very cool. Um, and we're going to Dublin for the Hugos this year. Fabulous. And we're going to Bacon, and so yeah. Okay, cool. So people can find you there. They can find you at your website being? Galacticjourney.org. Okay. And um, on Twitter? Journey Galactic. Journey Galactic. Okay, so the last question I like to ask everybody is, what do you want your readers to know from you? Like, if, if you had one thing that you hope people take away, what would that be? I hope people have a better understanding of the factors that shaped the voices of back then. So the the writing of the time, it, it both speaks to us now because good writing is good writing. But at the same time, it was shaped by the environment they were in. There's a reason why 1964 is this dividing line between classic golden age science fiction and the new wave that's coming. People are exploring the psychological aspects of science fiction, um, getting a little more dystopian about their outlook, realizing that science won't fix everything, realizing that there are racial issues to keep track of, realizing that there are revolutions brewing under the surface, whether it's the, the second wave of feminism or it's the civil rights movement and, or the environmentalist movement. And you really get a feel for that in this 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 time of massive change the beatles have just come over star trek's about to come out and star trek is very much the crest of this wave of something new so i want people to go to the journey and really feel like wow i can see why this change is happening and i can see the beginnings of this time that i love so much whether i'm watching the expanse or i'm reading nora jemison or about or about i'm enjoying all the Marvel movies enjoying the science fiction that is happening today I can see where it all began back then right that's amazing I, I love that project for that reason being being a sci-fi geek back when actually in the 80s it wasn't okay I mean people were kind of into Star Wars some people liked Star Trek but it wasn't okay to be a sci-fi geek back then we were a small group of people who were picked upon so I love I that yeah you remember it well yeah <laughs> but um, but it's nice to see it be appreciated now um, also fun fact you are you've got a story in an anthology I was just taking a look at um, Leo McBride is in there as well so 
Um, real quick, plug that before we end the interview. I love it when people plug things. So plug, <laughs> plug, plug. Um, so la- I've been a nonfiction author for a long time, but last year I was able to publish my first fiction, um, and I have the lead story in a great anthology called Tales from Alternate Earths 2, um, and the story is called Andy and Tina, and it is the story of an alternate universe, Valentina Tereshkova. Mm. Uh, who made her first flight in 1963, so it's very timely. So if you're interested in the space race or Soviets on the Moon or Valentina Tereshkova or an alternate space opera by the Kinks, um, I would pick up Andy and Tina. And there's 10 other stories if you don't like mine. Awesome. And uh, Leo McBride is in there as well. It's from Inklings Press once again. And and, uh, so he he highly recommended you when I said, hey, I'm going to go meet these people. So it was a pleasure to meet you and Janice and see your home. And it is as cool as described. Um, In fact, when the TV turned on and it was a little loopy, I almost jumped to do the rabbit ears because that was my job as a kid. So um, that was just a fabulous, authentic moment of nostalgia so I want to thank you it was a pleasure meeting you and thank you for being on 1001 LA Nights thank you so much Lori you're welcome it's my deepest honor to read Blood Rose by Aspen Knudsen who is a good Twitter writing community friend. I've had many a pleasant interaction with Aspen. If you're looking for a cheerleader to root you on, have a lovely conversation in direct message, follow Aspen Knutson. I want to give you a reminder, this is a cold reading. This isn't an audiobook. We're not editing. There will be some foibles and fumbles. I try to give the first two minutes as good a run as I can, but imagine being read to. Find a cozy spot, get a blankie. Um, You will hear dogs barking in the background. Uh, I'm not sitting in my recording studio editing this. You're being read to. Just like when you were a kid. If you were so lucky as to have a family member or a librarian or a teacher take the time to read to you. And my view is, as even grown-ups like to be read to, isn't it cozy? Isn't it warm? Isn't it inviting? So find a favorite spot and a favorite beverage and get ready to enjoy Blood Rose by Aspen Knutson. Inspired by friends who make me laugh, family who make me love, and the mud which helped me grow. Chapter one, rules. The lotus is the most beautiful flower whose petals open one by one, but it will only grow in the mud. In order to grow and gain wisdom, first you must have the mud, the obstacles of life and its suffering. The mud speaks of the common ground that humans share, no matter what our stations in life, whether we have it all or we have nothing. We are all faced with the same obstacles, sadness, loss, illness, dying, and death. If we are to strive as human beings to gain more wisdom, more kindness, and more compassion, we must have the intention to grow as a lotus and open each petal one by one. Goldie Hawn. Yes? Ahem. Excuse my manners. 
it has been a while since I have spoken to anyone. It's also not often my place gets a visitor quite like you. Our world needs your help. There is an illness coming for both your planet and mine. But for now, I have to rest. Take a deep breath. You're safe here. And only my words can reach you through these pages, for now. I don't have much time, you see. I'm using a lot of my power to send you this message. Who knew someone like me could have power limits? What am I? I've been watching planets for some time now, a galactic watchman of sorts. From my research, I've found we relate closely to what humans call a scientist or a philosopher, watching everything closely for causes and effects with deeper meanings. Maybe we are not so different. Can you imagine your homeland without people? This was one of my planets long ago, but we'll get there in t good time. Yet still you should know our planet's biological life is very similar. Our story begins at the end, several thousand years into your future, with a princess. Had not been for this girl who believed she knew everything, secrets hidden in time, villains seeking redemption, and a dash of hope, I think my world may very well have fallen apart. This is a lot to take in, I know. But you have made it this far. You may be the one I'm looking for. So what exactly does any of this have to do with your world, may I ask? Oh, you may ask? I can tell you. Our, wor our worlds are linked. But you must solve the mystery. And before I tell you more, I must lay down some rules. This in itself may come, come off as strange, but I warn you. Without knowing these rules, you may quickly find yourself lost in a foreign land with no hopes of survival in the fictional and non-fictional world. Rule 1. Here people dare not believe in or whisper of unseen forces and otherworldly things. The penalty could be worse than death. Rule 2. Remember perception has an interesting role in life, and unless time is taken to understand the deeper meaning, can be lost. Rule three, hold on to the thought that we are not who we come from, but the paths we alone pave. Understand? You look a little confused. Ah, now remember, you may not know me, but I know you. Mm, or maybe I don't. That's your choice. I suppose we'll see in good time. Read those rules again. Don't be stubborn, just do it. You may have read the rules one or two times already. Unfortunately, my perception is limited. Though you see, in my world, people live by the first rule, breathe by this rule, and many take refuge in the thought that these things aren't real. The rule is the keeper to one of our biggest secrets, but some secrets are meant to be told, aren't they? I will let you decide. To many I seem arrogant, but if you knew as much as this old deity knows, tell me, what do you think you would be like? I have seen metal orbs fall from the sky, bringing a race who knew only destruction, wiping out entire species, and building kingdoms on their graves, brothers killing brothers, 
and friends betraying friends. This was what I learned to be humanity. Soon I will show you. Though I suppose it wouldn't be fair to group you all in that category, for some, like the child and kingdoms in the story, have something else inside of them that gives them the ability to change and bring with them the knowledge that can save everyone. Who knows? You could be one of those people. Did you feel that pull? For such weak bodies, humans hold such an immense force inside of them. I believe you would call it spirit, correct? Funny. That's what they call me, too. Well, those who remain brave enough to believe in me. Our introduction may be short, and my words may be dull, possibly even slightly terrifying, but I feel as though soon you'll know why you're here. Until we meet again, weary traveler. D. Chapter 2. The Illness. To be beautiful means to be yourself. You don't need to be accepted by others. You need to accept yourself. When you are born a lotus flower, be a beautiful lotus flower. Don't try to be a magnolia flower. If you crave acceptance and recognition and try to change yourself to fit what other people want you to be, you will suffer all your life. True happiness and true power lie in understanding yourself, accepting yourself, and having confidence in yourself. Thich Nhat Hanh Every cleaner Every clean villager smiled as they exchanged their morning hellos. The kingdom of lotuses had been as normal as it had been every morning, for as long as anybody could remember. Fortunately for this kingdom, the village had only a population of a few hundred people, who relied mainly on the power of four large windmills that, if you asked, had been there as long as anyone could remember. The sun was high in the clear sky, and sent rays onto the evergreen lotus fields trickling streams, which emptied into the sparkling bay of Yalana. Melodic songbirds filled the air with their chirps, while yellow seabirds that looked much like cranes with giant wings flew overhead. Their powerful flaps set the trees swaying, with the occasional gusts, gusts tusks of flowers would explode petals into the wind. The bay's fishy salt air couldn't mask the smell of botanicals and freshly baked bread that lingered over the Victorian-style village and surrounded the kingdom's castle. One of the castle's tall cobblestone pillars, which could cut into clouds on a dark day, held the lotus-crested flag that flapped in the breeze over the head of Princess Persephone. Persephone could have been known as an oddity for standing a foot taller than all the other sixteen-year-old girls in the kingdom or even for her hair, that could run past her bowed bowed knees as though it was always tied in an orderly bun. Even Maybe even that she was the only person in the kingdom with dark skin, which always popped against the bright feathered dresses she was forced to wear. She was told she had a skin condition and she'd be proud of the royal extravagant clothes that kept her skin hydrated. But her brilliantly green eyes were on the village children who had thin and simple spider silk clothes. That morning she had been high atop the castle watching gray clouds as they started to consume the blue sky from beyond her vision across the bay. 
Her knight was off monitoring the many hand paintings that adorned the castle walls. He knew she hated him lingering the way he was supposed to. Everything seemed so normal. That's why she could have been anywhere in the kingdom and heard the high-pitched scream that echoed through the air bouncing through every crevice in the, of the kingdom. Everyone heard the scream. The whole kingdom froze, even the noises. All that remained was the whisper of a breeze and the cracks of the large windmills. The few children stopped playing, maids stopped cleaning, the market traders stopped trading, the blacksmiths stopped smithing, even the well-fed dogs that were barking and the groomed horses that were pulling carriages stopped in their tracks, all looking towards the queen, Soraya's tower. The scene around Persephone became a blur. Even the stray strand of black hair that kept whipping her eye violently, her sickly thin legs, which would normally cause her trouble, broke into a flawless sprint. She couldn't feel her eye burn even as the strand got caught in the corner and sent a tear down her cheek. In an instant, she was beside her mother's bed with no idea how she made it to the other side of the castle's massive frame. The room was spotless, like always, though not through the efforts of the maids as they were not permitted in the queen's chambers. Soraya found cleaning to be very therapeutic, every piece of furniture polished, every item as it always had been, but the huge mirror that hung on the wall was shattered into thousands of pieces. Only for a second, the question of how that happened wandered through Persephone's mind. That's when her eyes noticed it, a black handprint that drugged down the wall next to her mother's bed. In a normal frame of mind, Persephone might have questioned how her legs could have gotten her there so fast, had she fainted as she normally would. Though a normal creamy alabaster hue, now sickly green, sent her mind in haze, it was her mother's face. A normally plump and round face now had a thin appearance, like the queen's skin lay compressed to the top of her bones. Then it hit the princess, making her momentarily recoil, the odor of rotten meat. Queen Soraya was a strong woman, who just this morning had the power to draw attention everywhere she went, but was somehow crumpled on her bed like a lifeless rag doll. The smell seemed to be coming from a black tar-like substance that covered the queen's red hair, plush sheets, dr cracked dry lips, and all over her otherwise stainless white blouse. Persephone had a keen eye, but in that moment she couldn't be sure if she had truly seen a purple shine, like that of a beetle shell, shimmer from under the bed as she sunk to her mother's bed bedside. The need to gag overtook the princess before her voice was able to come out. When it came out, it was barely an audible squeak. The rain descended softly against the castle's walls and windows. Mother, what's happened? What's wrong? Persephone's voice shook. Queen Soraya smiled but cringed under the immense pain this effort caused her. With tears in her eyes, the queen motioned for Persephone to lean in. The girl's nose crinkled, along with her eyebrows, as she was forced to lean in and had to keep leaning till her ear rested on her mother's scratchy lips. Terrified and squeamish, she had to use every ounce of her being not to throw up from the smell of the foul substance that was squishing against her ear. Remember what I have always told you, Najira. Remember your rose, Soraya mumbled as her voice wavered in and out of sound. 
The queen closed her eyes and pulled back to cough up more tar. Persephone had never seen anything like this. Never a death. Never an illness. Never an incredibly terrifying sight. She stared, stiff and frozen as her mother retched. Over a dozen heavily armed guards in red armor burst into the room, but were noticeably taken back by the room's stench, each one clasping their hands to their mouths. One vomited with set, set off a series of gags and dropped swords, but the queen looked only at her daughter. She lifted a pale hand, shakily brushing the sole tear from Persephone's cheek. The princess couldn't cry. She couldn't think. And when her vision began to blur, she had realized she'd forgotten how to breathe. A lie, loud, high-pitched ring filled her mind as the guards rushed her out, nudging at her feet with theirs when words didn't seem to face her. She felt glued into place and couldn't hear them. Outside, there was one guard, who was a few heads taller than Persephone, and held himself high with messy brown hair that stopped at his shoulders the youngest of the guards, Persephone's guard. He wore the customary red armor, but the crest of the blue lotus was embossed on the chest plate. Sir Dug stayed outside of the queen's chamber, while the rest quietly shuffled back inside after carefully pushing out the statue of a princess. His dark brown eyes were full of concern watching the princess's unmoving character, but his posture remained stiff. Minutes passed in silence, and Doog shifted from side to side more often, and although every move he had made from side to side was very loud, Persephone remained unmoving, staring only at the floor. The young knight cleared his throat three or four times. He'd lost track, but after soundly, soundlessly opening and closing his mouth several times without a move from the princess, he decided it was better not to say anything. Finally, the rest of the guards came out with somber eyes. Persephone broke her intense stare of an all-black sand grain on the gray stone floor to scan the soldiers for some sign of life. The hope in her eyes was extinguished when she saw each one give a weak nod and drop their gaze to the floor, looking maybe, she thought, at the same speck. Mom! Persephone screamed. She tried to run through the door, but Doog was still there unwavering strength and pulled her into a tight hug. She went limp in his arms as blackness overtook her vision as she heard Doog's final words. She's gone. Not now, she thought. This was the worst part, the secret. She'd now have have to face alone and the one thing the entire kingdom knew about and teased her for she fainted. But what they didn't know was what happened when she closed her eyes. I hate my name! Persephone yelled at the top of her lungs. She was six years old and covered in mud, bursting into the castle's kitchen wearing the clothes of the villagers. Queen Soraya was chatting with a group of maids in her bright yellow low-cut dress with pink trim that made the maids, including Trevia, seem to fade behind her. All of them looked at the princess in bewilderment. A couple of maids made faces they were lucky the queen didn't see. The small girl stumbled forward, her hair in knots and tangles. I brought some delicious food from the castle, Persephone spoke over the scene. 
we've told you how many times you can take off your fancy clothes, but you'll never be one of us. Why would you want to be friends? Why would we want to be friends with someone like you anyway? You seem like a little pushover and can't even stand for two minutes without falling over. Besides, what kind of freak can't cry and has the name like Persephone? Their voices, like she had heard them all yesterday. Two homeless children she had tried to befriend. You know I could have killed you for talking to a princess like that. How? You're not even royal, Persephone. The queen brushed Persephone's stray hair from her emerald green eyes, and the child quickly pulled away. Looking out the door, she came in, but not before her mother had seen the bruises. Persephone, even in a dream, could still feel each blow they gave her. You need to stop messing with those street kids. You ask me not to step in, but this is so hard to see, Najira. Oh, Niraja. Her mother said with a sympathetic tone. Persephone looked at the queen with one raised eyebrow and puffed out her chest. I'm getting further with them. I know it. The wolves Trevia made definitely helped, only this time it was about my name. They said it sounds weird. The princess said. She only half lied in her mind as she kicked a spot on the ground. The maid snickered. Silly girl. She doesn't know what she's doing. She'll be lucky to make it to queenhood. We all know that brat doesn't belong on the throne anyways. The queens swung around to glare at the maids, hearing their whispers, and they cowered beneath her glare. Soraya's eyes then turned back to the young princess with a softer expression. Do you know why we named you Persephone Niraja? Soraya questioned with a voice smooth like honey. Her red hair blew delicately around her face like a fire. as it often did when her mother would speak, even in the absence of the wind. The young girl always had a certain look of awe when this would happen. With that look, she asked, Why, mother? The queen picked up the princess with ease and swung her around, dress skirting out beneath her beautiful skill, beneath her skilled feet till they were both laughing. We all come from a people. They used to use unique names, but they knew something our people have lost. Your name is a message of hope that one day you can see and be part of the world as it once had been, and if you're lucky, bring what you've learned to make it better. The maids may have gasped here, and Queen Soraya's words may have been lost at that time, but the princess asked back, What do you mean, Mama? What did the world used to be like? At the gasps, the queen's smile fell to a tight line, and she responded, that's something I can only tell you when you're older. Till then, I'm assigning you our most qualified young knight in training to accompany you whenever you go out into the kingdom. This can't keep happening. Persephone broke from her mother's grip and stomped her foot on the ground. You're always saying that. You're too young. You won't understand. You know what, Mom? You don't. You don't understand. These words shot out like poison making the queen flinch. The child took note of the movement and after, and took a somber tone. You can't do that to me. I just want to fit in. Do you know how much they will tease me if I can't even stand my ground? Sreya gritted her teeth and she shot her poison back. Don't you understand you can't? A quick, deep gasp like being pulled from the grip of death and Persephone found herself back in the real world. But somehow she made it to her bed. 
It was likely Doug had taken care of her like he always did when she suffered from a spill. She was freezing, yet drenched in sweat, cold sweats, feelings that no matter how many times she had them, she wasn't sure she'd ever get used to them. Her visions were always intense, and now she couldn't let anyone know. Surely they would think she was crazy. There was one rule, one rule, yet that one rule left her feeling so imprisoned. Now her mother couldn't take her to the secret place in the palace's rose garden, couldn't tell her stories of the old gods and goddesses, couldn't listen intently to what the queen referred to as Persephone's visions. This was another level of torture she faced as she made her way to sit in the large paned glass window just to find her thoughts. It felt like there was a little literal hole slowly ripping its way up and around her heart. Rain trickled away as she rested her forehead on the window's cool surface. Her stray hair for once did not poke her eye or get in her mouth or fly up her nose, but instead it sat still and motionless next to her ear. But in that moment, the princess couldn't tell you which one. Her mind wouldn't stop wandering back to all the moments she heard her mother, but a dark dock quickly getting larger and larger from across the bay was enough to keep her in the moment. It was a bulky mass much larger than any ship she'd ever seen in the bay. Straining her eyes against the rain to make out the figure caused too much pain accompanying the fog in her mind so sleep seemed the best and only escape from the emptiness she was feeling inside. Chapter 3 Royal Duty Great people will always be mocked by those who feel smaller than them. A lion does not flinch at laughter coming from a hyena. A gorilla does not budge from a banana thrown at it by a monkey. A nightingale does not stop singing in its beautiful, its beautiful song at the intrusion of an annoying woodpecker. Whenever you should doubt your self-worth, remember the lotus flower. Even though it plunges from life beneath the mud, it does not allow the dirt that surrounds it to affect its growth or beauty. Susie Kassim Lying in bed was more of a hopeless attempt, as all she could do was toss and turn. As her eyes finally seemed to be giving away under the, under the pressure, a hissing sound from the outside of her door flung, back, flung them back open again. This hissing continued on until she forced her body off the bed with all her strength, feet dragging a bit with every step. Her fingers gripped the doorknob a bit tighter than normal and lingered there. For a moment, she savored the idea of strangulation before opening the door to find Sir Doob dripping from every inch. Before she could manage a word, he placed a finger against them with a shh and began dragging Persephone down the castle's long corridors. Doog, what are you doing? Persephone snapped. Her voice echoed off the walls. She tried to pull away, but his grip was tight and he pulled her harder. But her legs were having a hard time keeping pace as they kept buckling. Doog noticed this, swept her up, and rushed on. Just keep quiet and trust me on this one. There's another king here, the king of Berksham. Duke's voice was fast and hushed. Persephone wanted to fight the knight's unwelcome touch, but this news left a familiar ringing in her ear. The king of Berksham is here? Isn't there a separation act between our kingdoms? I mean, like a really old separation act? I didn't pay very much attention in class. Seems silly. But I'm pretty sure there's a... Persephone's voice trailed off as Doug looked down at her momentarily with a signature raised eyebrow, twitching left eye, and straight line of mouth. 
Exactly. Now keep your mouth shut, will you? Duke pleaded, but he didn't stop moving. His eyes remained locked on something. Persephone bit her lips, then stuck out her bottom lip in a pout that her knight didn't see because he knew better than to look at this point. The silence seemed to last an eternity, but the ringing wasn't nearly as deafening this time, and Sir Duke hadn't seemed to notice it. He was never, never usually so short with the princess, but she knew her knight must have a reason. He always did. Setting her down outside her father's study, Duke gave her one last eye-twitching look. She wanted to tease him about it, but two voices that echoed from King Mekio's chamber stopped her. King Mekio, who sounded furious, and another much more sinister sounding voice. You come to me now with this nonsense again? Mekio boomed. His voice was a power to behold, shaking the door's frame slightly open. Persephone dared look through to see the man who could, or would, have possibly made her father so angry. As far as the princess knew, he was always so reasonable. The other man was more like a well-dressed pig than a man, dressed in furs of all colors that had stains of all colors. Countless silver chains and emblems hung out from the rolls of his neck. Rings embellished every one of his sausage-like fingers, his unruly black beard with bits of food stuck out, like it hadn't been kempt in years, and his hair hung in greasy, dark gray locks a little past his waist. Your wife has died, your kingdom will die, and your daughter will die. I'm simply giving you a way to end the suffering before you have to wake up and realize you did this to your people. The, men, the man coughed a few wheezy coughs. Something hard and glass was thrown against the wall and shattered. Mekio's voice almost deafened the blast as he yelled at the pigman. Get out! Persephone and Duke scrambled away from the door, but too late. The man, who Persephone could now see, had a large silvery crown with several blinking red lights strung at his side, towering over both of them in height and width with a rotten tooth grin. My, my, you aren't very much of a girl, are you? No matter, your father will reconsider my offer. Soon he will have no choice. <laughs> the king chuckled. With that, he strode down the hallway towards the front door of the castle, pushing several maids aside in his path, each one making a scared squeal. When the young man, who normally attended the front doors, tried to op hold open the door for the guest, he threw the boy, who was nearly three times smaller, violently to the ground before growling, I've got it, you bumbling idiot! King Mekio came out, his crown slightly sagging on his long brown hair, which along with his beard stuck out at every angle as he had been pulling them since his wife's death. His large demeanor, which was dressed in a long trailing robe, slouched. Normally, he doubled that of the other king, but with much more muscle and like a mighty lion. Though now he slouched in a way that made him look several heads smaller and sweat beaded his face. The king's blue eyes popped against his tanned skin, which stretched hard against his angry, war-scarred features. Noticing the children as soon as he opened the door, he stumbled backward only slightly. Persephone noticed a purple gem in the shape of a scarab on a ring her father was wearing. For as long as the princess remembered, King Mekio didn't wear rings, or any jewelry for that matter. How long have you been there? glass fell from the magistrate's robes onto the floor with several quiet pings that seemed far louder than they should have been. Persephone choked up, but Sir Dug interjected, Just walking by, your majesty. 
This seemed to soothe the king as he slouched for the still. Well, off you go then. They scurried down the hall, too scared to look back. Persephone's legs sticking out awkwardly as she ran after Duke's perfect sprint. Something about the strange visitor and her father's newfound interest in jewelry wasn't setting, settling right with her. The rain continued its barrage of the castle as the pair made it far enough away that nobody could hear. Princess Persephone turned to Duke, and agitation lingered in her voice. So would you like to tell me what that was all about? Sir Duke's face turned bright red as he stumbled to find the right words. It's nothing, he paused to clear his throat. I thought I overheard something. The way he refused to meet her eyes, keeping them locked on the large pan, paned glass windows by the castle's front door made her uneasy. Something, huh? Was What about that ring? Seems to me like you heard more than your... But before she could pry, more screams echoed from the town. I've got to see what's going on. Duke finally looked down at the princess. His left eye twitched several times. He always did that to Persephone when he thought she was going to cause trouble. But the way one side of his lip fell, now that that had never happened, maybe other girls, maybe other girls, but never her. With that, he ran towards the sound of terror. Persephone's step, Persephone's steps, keeping him behind him, keeping an incredible pace. The rain fell in cool sheets. This and th- the three suns created a thickly humid atmosphere, which pressed the feathers on Persephone's, Persephone's dress flat to her body. This felt a lot like cold sweats, she shivered at this thought. During the end of the storms, everyone would always be watching in silent awe, marveling at the wide array of colors in the air formed by the suns, which each cast casted very unique waves through the clouds and water droplets. While one's rays sent out shades of red, yellow, or orange, and orange, which wiggled through the air, another created such a bright array of blues, greens, and purples that everyone knew you could not look directly at them, or you go blind, and the final sun did something truly magnificent. These waves were not dependent on light at all, but sound. As they moved through the air, they sent such a vibration that each water droplet took on a perfectly round shape and fell in lined unison. Somehow Duke and Persephone ran down the castle steps and through the muddy dirt path to the town without a glance at the sky. Don't stress your body, my lady, Duke said through pants as they reached the town and began to slow down. When Persephone stayed silent and kept pace with her bow, bow legs, awkwardly attempting to operate, Duke tried filling the empty air with more than the sounds of rain, terror, and his armor. But, um, <clears throat> that ring, it came in a parcel this morning, no sender, but your father took a liking to it. Kind of funny, though, because none of his scholars seemed to be able to find the stone's origin, and he refused to take it off once he put it on. It's weird looking, huh? Persephone twirled the stray lock of hair into place behind her ear in contemplation but her eyes were fixed on a mass of people, and her mind was moving through thoughts. Outside the castle was the village market, where one could usually find lots of laughter and good food to eat, but currently a huge crowd gathered and was screaming murderous screams. Mechio's Marauder's Second Class. Mechio's Marauder's Second Class, please, please move aside, Sir Duke. The young knight, who was the same age as the princess, held more authority in his voice than high-ranking elites in the royal house. 
Persephone, even being around Dug as long as she had, was still amazed at how much power this young man harnessed. Many people were still screaming, complaining of a deathly odor, but they parted for the pair. Persephone knew the smell all too well, but she, but still she had to see who the victim was. Instead, she saw between the hundreds of legs a quick flash of purple. Dug froze in front of Persephone, if only for a moment. Long enough, the princess bumped into him before he turned around and threw her over his shoulder. Through her, pro- through her protests, he brought her back into the castle and told Trevia, Trevia, the gray-haired and shriveled-head maid, not to let her leave before he headed back outside. Persephone get gaped at the door a long while before it creaked open again with a very pale and muddy dug in its frame who quietly said, I must go see your father. With that, the knight in his heavy clanking armor ran down the long corridor and past the large columns that led to the main hall without a glance back. Do you know what on earth is going around here? Persephone snapped a bit too harshly at Trevia. The old maid with frail hands shifted her thick round glasses on her nose and gave the princess a stern look. Shaking her head, she silently walked away, leaving Persephone staring after her in frustration and confusion. Please. Persephone's hand flinched at her side, but Trivia just acted like the knight had and resumed her walk in the opposite direction. I can't be the only one not seeing something weird going on, right? The doorman cleared his throat and said in his boyish tone, Ma'am, are you seeing something weird? Persephone examined the boy's concerned face, but her response time was impeccable. No, I'm fine, just one of those pesky eye floaters. Ah, maybe try some lotus water, he said with a big grin, happy to be of service. He pulled out a flask. The princess took it and washed the fake particles from her eyes before handing him the flask with a quiet mumbled thank you. The queen's funeral had the members of the castle busy, being arranged for later that afternoon. As the hours ticked by, more and more villagers began to die, and Duke had yet to return to the princess. Persephone walked the usually silent halls with an anxiety forming her chest. Her steps clumped through the void, and she wondered if anything would ever be normal again. If there could be something to take the events of the day away, life could be so much easier. But alas, that sounded a lot like magic, which was long forbidden. And beyond her mother's stories, Persephone had never never known of any kind of god to save the day. Fortunately, she had managed an afternoon without fainting. But her footsteps loudly filling everywhere she went created a pounding in her head. Soon she forgot where she was and began walking with a glaze over her eyes, trying to remember all her mother taught her. Persephone, come here, please. Mechio's unexpected voice made the princess jump with her awkward legs and stumble. She caught herself on a stone column outside her father's study. Here she was yet again, but this time Dug and Mechio were inside, looking as white as the sheets Trevia would lay out every morning. Persephone had been in her father's study a thousand times, though this, though this the red walls and countless stuffed animal heads seemed to pop more than they had ever had. The large window shrouded by clouds left a darkness that normally wasn't there. Candles sent shadows dancing across the faces of the animals. Some animals you and me know, like tigers and bears, and some, like Katayama, were things only Persephone could understand, and yet some, like a giant glowing rock, even she didn't know was once an animal. 
Between Persephone and the other two was a coffer table covered in books. The table had been handed down with each new ruler of the Lotus Kingdom, and next to her a handmade wooden chair which she sat in. Yes, father. At the sound of Persephone's voice, Mechio made a pain noise like he was punched in the gut. You and Du will be going to Dr. Jeannie. She knows of a flower that can save our kingdom. The king said through a tight jaw and rubbed his ringed hand. Yes, father. Persephone nodded, but she couldn't stop one brow from rising. Our kingdom... Our kingdom needs you, Persephone. He looked at Duke for, for help, but the boy, who had never frozen in any of his training fights, even with knights much larger than him, looked petrified. The young princess mindlessly nodded her head, still full of thoughts of her mother, and a pain prickled the back of her mind from the footsteps that still seemed to be echoing. She dared not speak as the stars shot across her vision. She knew now nobody could hear the footsteps or see the stars but her anyway. The mighty ruler who had ruled the Lotus Kingdom his entire life did something he had never done. He sighed deep and long, taking off his crown which thudded loudly on the table. Both kids adjusted their posture at this act. The old king's biggest scar, a cut across his left eye, which began right before the hairline and ended at his chin, was more noticeable than ever as he ran his hands through his mess of hair. He stopped midway through as it was so tangled from his pulling and holding his arms bent in the air, he stared at his daughter. You know there are few things in life that give me joy. Your mother, my kingdom, and you. Mekio's voice was cold, as if he were giving an order to a knight. He was able to work his thick, callous fingers from his hair in a way nobody would have known he was even stuck. Panic spread across the king as he looked down at the ring, and if Persephone didn't know better, she would have sworn it looked like purple smoke was forming in the beetle's depths. Yes, father, I know, but mother's gone. Persephone fiddled with the stray lock that had just worked out from behind her ear, but she couldn't find the strength to ask about the ring. Which is why I must send you away. I cannot lose my kingdom, and I will not lose you. Persephone opened her mouth to protest her father's words, but he raised his hand and she pursed her lips together, and he went on. You are to be married. The man you saw early is, earlier is Darone and his son Jaron, just turned 25 and is looking for a wife. The princess attempted to speak, but the king was louder and continued on. The overwhelmed Persephone stunned to silence. Their kingdom, Berksham, is also the only one with the ability to get the cure with the separation act in place, which will be lifted upon completion of the arrangements. You have no choice. You must leave in his ship tomorrow morning. That's when Persephone stomped her foot so loud on the floor, Trevius' head poked into the room before quickly pulling out and running down the hallway. No! The princess cried shrilly. This could not be happening, she thought, with a noticeable red tint spreading across her face. I will not! I would rather die with my kingdom! The king's eyes filled with tears, and Doug gulped, but their gazes didn't break from Persephone as words continued firing out of her mouth. Father, that's a man. What would a mother say? Can't you just send someone on a quest to retrieve the item? Persephone's words came out in a fury before she had a chance to realize what she'd done. Mechio's slumped posture stiffened up with several pops, giving him his full mass, earned, though, the years of his youth and fighting the kingdom's bear. 
you dare defy me. I'm your father and the king of this kingdom. You will be married. You know nothing of this world or murder or the murder you're asking me to commit. His lion-like mane was a mess of tangles. His crown hung crooked again, and Trevia's signature cardinal lingered on his breath as he turned to Duke. The knight nodded and grabbed the princess's hand, pulling her away before she could say another word. All the while, he refused to meet her flabbergasted expression. End of part one. Chapter four. Genie. Chapter four. Genie. It's like growing lotus flowers. You cannot grow lotus flowers on marble. You have to grow them on the mud. Without mud, you cannot have lotus flowers. Without suffering, you have no way to learn how to be understanding and compassionate. Thich Nhat Hanh. What are you doing? Persephone tried to fight the knight's vice-like grasp, but he held firm, guiding her out of the castle. His eyes were ahead of him, as they always had been since he came to serve the royal house. I'm taking you to Dr. Genie, as is your father's orders. Everything was moving so fast for Persephone. Between the queen's mysterious death and the king's unorthodox orders, she dug her feet into the ground. No! The princess's shout scared off a flock of songbirds. She knew she was going to rule a kingdom someday, but it was supposed to be her kingdom, not someone else's. Come on now, don't cause a scene, we have to hurry. Duke chuckled at the pout his words caused Persephone to make, but she didn't budge, so with a forced grin he replied, Don't make me carry you, because you know I will. Duke gazed into Persephone's eyes. When she refused to move, he simply shrugged and threw her over his shoulders. Nothing is making sense to me. This is all happening so fast. I'm not sure I can wrap my mind around everything. Everywhere I've been going since my mother's death, I've been plagued by something purple. It's like it's following me, I think. I think it killed my mom. I think that ring has something to do with my dad and Darone. And I think it's killing my people. Plagued? Is that really a good word choice? Duke laughed, shaking Persephone. A ball of anger inside her burst as his light-hearted nature at his light-hearted nature, and she had to rub her temples to keep her eyes from dimming out of focus. How are you taking this all so well? It's like you can't take anything seriously. Persephone had gotten so used to Duke's immobilizing grip, she wouldn't try to run, but she still hit him as hard as she could several times in the back. Hey, come on now. I take plenty of things seriously, but it sounds like you're getting all worked up over nothing you hear yourself if nobody else saw it it sounds like you're talking crazy don't do that i don't need you getting locked up for rule breaking it leaves a bad impression on my record he replied shaking her vigorously with one shoulder while still managing to keep her on his shoulder with the other arm but hey it's said that those that have the thickest skins have the best humor whatever you don't even have a record and it's your skull that's thick not your skin can i get down now Persephone may have normally kicked Duke, but the thought of the strange look he'd given her stopped her. Her face went red, as she couldn't understand what that could have possibly have to do with anything. CP, this is why nobody invites you over. You're such a spoil, spoil sport. 
Just go with the flow. Duke's attempt at joking with Persephone ended much like many of their walks did, in an uncomfortable silence. Past the castle walls beyond the village and way behind the windmills, there was a single small cottage. Coming upon this place might have surprised an unknowing visitor as the entire scape was barren, except around the home. The home may have been small, but numerous fruits and veggies grew grew at giant proportions. Pieces of glass hung suspended by string, catching light beams and shooting out colorful rays and containing it. All five large cacti were planted in a way that if you were to draw a line connecting them, they would make a circle. Each of these cacti had several large green trumpet-like protrusions that jetted out in every direction towards the top. Doug knocked on the door while Persephone hung on his shoulder like a depressed rag doll. Even her eyes held a lifeless look of a child's toy. The door creaked open, and Doug jumped back. Persephone snickered. In the frame that Persephone couldn't see stood a thin woman who could have been 50 or 80, standing as high as Persephone. Her eyes frosted, her face sagging yet youthful, holding but not supported by a wooden cane, with hair as white as snow that seemed to be both white and blonde, and a voice that came out almost as creaky as the door. Princess, Macchio told me you'd be coming. Please, young man, release the princess and find a place outside to make yourself comfortable. Duke placed Persephone on the ground but raised an eyebrow at the doctor. Nothing personal, sweetie. You seem like a sweet button, but knights are not allowed in my house. After a heated argument between the knight and the doctor, Persephone found herself in the doctor's home. She twirled the stray hair that was poking her eye as the doctor motioned her to sit in a very comfortable-looking rocking chair. This is when Persephone noticed that not only was this home a lot bigger than it looked out on the outside, but besides the chairs in this house was bare. Do you know what's going on? The princess looked the doctor up and down frantically, who was observing her in the same manner. I may have an idea. This book will give you the answers you need. As soon as you get to Berksham, give it to Jerome. Jeannie's hands, which seemed surprisingly youthful, handed Persephone a tattered journal. Bound in some kind of soft leather the princess had never felt before, she read a, the small wriggly, handwrite, wiggly handwriting written font of the book, Ancient Gods and Goddesses. Ancient Gods and Goddesses? Wouldn't this be contraband? Persephone ran her fingers down the book's smooth spine. Maybe she imagined it, but the pages felt like they had a faint heartbeat. Hey, this is L.A. Rivers, and I want to invite you to become a patron of 1001 L.A. Nights. Not only do you get the episodes ad-free, so you don't have to listen to this or the other ad for Anchor.fm, you get special content. You even get to find out my real name for as little as $2 a month. There's lots of perks, lots of bennies. See me at patreon.com forward slash 1001 LA Nights. Such a great story. 
unfolding from Aspen Knutson. You can find more of Aspen Knutson's writing on her blog, and that web link will be in the description. Uh, follow her on Twitter. Remarkable, supportive person, truly. Once again, I want to thank the amazing, generous, talented folk of the writing community. That's you. Thank you for turning, tuning in. Uh, I hope this podcast is giving you something to think about, feel about, uh, want to be about. Uh, next week, I interview Rick Ryan. Uh, in fact, I've already inter- interviewed him. Uh, next Friday, we're going to talk to Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, it's elementary, dear Watson, which, of course, we know Sherlock Holmes didn't say. But uh, great interview. Uh, had fun. Uh, Sunday, poignant interview with Sotwinder Simone Isser, who is a soulful and uh, deeply connected teacher, healer, and social activist. And she'll be reading some of her poetry. And again, I'm very proud to have her on the program and to have a great conversation with her. I've known Simone for many years. She was a student of mine at an online business school. And it's really great to watch her uh, step into herself and her full capabilities. That's, that's one of the things that I'm all about is self-actualization and self-determination. So you'll always have a bit of that here on the podcast as we bring voices from around the world, around the country, from different walks of life, different backgrounds. Because as I wrote on my Twitter, I could play those games of how are you like me? How much alike are we? But you see, I don't want another me to talk to. I talk to myself all the time. Yeah, I listen. Okay, so don't judge. I want to know about you. I want to know what do you bring to the table? Because it's your differences from me that make the world an interesting place. We have far more in common than we do differences. But, you know, hey, if you like strawberries and don't like chocolate, we can be great friends because I love chocolate and I can't eat strawberries. It's that kind of thing. Finding the richness of humanity has always been a quest of mine because as, as much as people focus on how rotten we can be to each other, I'm amazed at how we are at our best and we have people stepping up to be their best every single day, just giving it a try. So, um... To Aspen, thank you for pointing out that the mud is what makes the lotus bloom, because that's what we're about here at a one at one thousand one LA Nights. See you next Sunday, March third, for a very special episode. Mm-hmm.